off, but Caesarea Philippi is at the top, um, and that's where, you know, the farthest north we went. But anyways, I went on this trip, and a guy named Ryan Miller went with us. He actually lives in Brooklyn, New York right now. He's doing some uh, church stuff up there, and his wife is in medical school, so she has to be there for a residency and such. But um, he went with me, and he, and he wrote a blog afterwards, and so... I'm going to tell you that 95%, maybe even 99% of my stuff is not original. It comes from Ryan Miller or Ray Vanderland, and uh, I want to give them credit while I still can right now. But uh, just so you know, I didn't make up all of this stuff. It's been researched carefully, and it's, it's out on the Internet if you want to find it or even on movies. But anyways, 25 miles, that's from Capernaum, uh, which is on the Sea of Galilee. That's the second uh, farthest north city I guess you'll see on that map. And then uh, 25 miles away from that to the north is Caesarea Philippi or Caesarea Philippi. Uh, It really doesn't matter how you say it. You get your point across. But it's 25 miles away from Jesus' home base for his ministry. And that that was on the Sea of Galilee. That's where he does a lot of his his teachings and, um, you know, where he works his miracles. A lot of that stuff occurs on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, where he actually lived and hung out was in Capernaum. But 25 miles away, he went to Caesarea Philippi. And he takes his disciples there, and they have to walk. Um, I actually took a bus there, and then I walked around for a little bit, but they have to walk. And we don't know when this is, but if it's in the summertime, it's above 100 degrees, and it's very humid because um, the the area around the Sea of Galilee is kind of like Corpus Christi. It's, It's hot, but it's also very humid. So these guys are walking, and you can imagine how long it would take. You know, 25 miles is a long way. And if you look in your Bible... In uh, chapter 16, it's only verses 13 through uh, 20. And that's all uh, this scene gets. But it's 25 miles away. And so this this must be very important if Jesus is going to make them hike all that way. And only eight verses make the Bible. But anyways, uh, Caesarea Philippi or Caesarea Philippi is sitting on Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is, is one of the tallest mountains around that area. And it was actually a city of 15,000 people, which is, you know, rather large back in that day. In the Old Testament, uh, Caesarea Philippi, it wasn't known by that name. It got changed later by uh, the Greeks and then by Herod the Great's son, Herod Philip. But uh, I'll get there. Uh, in the Old Testament, this city was known for being a center of uh, Baal or Baal worship. Uh, he was one of the main gods that the Israelites actually uh, bowed down to. Uh, you recall in the Bible that once they get in the promised land, uh, the Israelites become very disobedient. And they, they don't follow God, and they begin to mix different religions with their own. And one of the gods, one of the main gods they follow is called Baal. Um, he is a fertility god, and the way you worship him is not very pleasant. Some cases even have people sacrificing their babies in fire to please this god. But... This city is known uh, from the get-go as kind of a place where other idols are worshipped. But in the ancient world, there was a practice. Uh, popular belief held that fertility gods like Baal spent the raining seasons with humans on earth. So when it was raining, they were up here. And what the fertility gods would do is that they would cause trees and flowers to grow and you know grasses to, to spring out of the ground. And they would also bring uh, forth life from animals and from humans. And so they were very important to these people. Uh, but when the dry season came, and it's, it's very dry in Israel during the dry season, some places like in the desert, it, gets, it averages like zero inches of rain. It's never rained there. But 
Um, When the dry season came, these fertility gods went back down to their home. And their home was known as a watery underworld. It was called Sheol, or in Greek, uh, as we know it, Hades. And they remained there until the next rain season. And so it was very important to these people that the fertility gods come back, because if they don't come back, we don't have any food, uh, we don't have any offspring, how are we going to survive and carry on with our lives? And so people believed that they were, if they worshipped hard enough and often enough, these gods would come back. Uh, places with water, uh, consequently, became very sacred. Um, streams, rivers, springs, etc., because they were known as gateways to the underworld. And since the underworld is, is very watery, you can go through a stream and you can eventually get there, but people would, would be afraid to enter there because it's, it's such a holy place and it's kind of a city of the dead area. So uh, they would not go near there, but they would worship there. Next slide, please. Um, in this region of Caesarea Philippi, there is a massive cave. And in ancient days, you can see the, the water right in front of it. A stream ran out of the mouth of this cave, but uh, due to geology and an earthquake in the 19th century, the water no longer runs out of the cave. It runs straight out of the rock. But it used to run out of that cave, just trust me. Um, Shortly before Jesus' time, the Greeks came to this city, and uh, a lot of Israel became Hellenized, which means, you know, they turned to the Western European thinking, and uh, the way the Greeks did things, that's how the Israelites uh, began to do things. But shortly before Jesus' time, the Greeks came to this city, and they saw this cave and the river that ran out of it. And so what they did is they put two and two together, and they considered this cave to be a main entrance to the underworld. And they, they called, or they referred to the cave as the Gates of Hades. It's been found in history books and documents and so forth. And then after they, they, they kind of taken over the city and they had referred to this area as a holy place, they then declared that the god of the city, um, back then Greek cities kind of had a sponsor god, one that they would worship particularly, one that would protect the city. But this god of the city, Caesarea Philippi, would be Pan. Uh, Pan is a half-man, half-goat fertility god. Uh, It was believed that Pan, like other fertility gods like Baal, uh, lived in the underworld most of his life, or uh, most of the year, and then he came out during the raining seasons. And so this was a very sacred area to the Greeks and later the Israelites who had followed the Greek practices. And many temples were actually built around this cave, um, including one to Caesar Augustus that was later built by the Romans who came in here, one to Pan, one to the god Zeus, and then a shrine uh, called a shrine to the sacred goats. Uh, this city was so religiously important uh, to the pagans that it would have been considered kind of the Vatican, if I can say that, uh, for pan worship. Yet it was also a very sim- uh, sinful place. Next slide. Uh, this is the cave. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. This cave was, was the entrance to uh, to the underworld as the Greeks considered it. Um, you know, this is where the stream ran out of, but people didn't go near there. They didn't want to mess with it. Uh, you know, it was kind of a sacred area. But what they would do is they would try to lure Pan out. If they could get Pan out, they could get him, you know, to, to bring his powers here. They could get crops to grow, and maybe they could get some of his fertile abilities so they could have kids. So this was a very sacred area. Next slide. This is this is a niche. Uh, it's it's quite massive. You can see Scott here. He's one of the pastors, uh, the main pastor at Riverside up the road. But uh, he led my trip, 
uh, Scott Harris pointing to this large niche. And in this niche stood a massive statue of Pan. Uh, he was standing on his hind legs, and he, he was half goat from the bottom down, and then man from uh, the top up. But uh, scholars believe that his statue actually, you know, he had a large phallus sticking out, and people would come uh, from all over the world. Thousands of people from all over the world came to Israel. Uh, Israel, no less, the land known for its monotheism, the first religion to have one God. Thousands of people came from everywhere, and they packed into this, this city called Caesarea Philippi. And they bowed down before the statue of the half-goat, half-man fertility god, hoping to gain some of his sexual powers and abilities so that they could have those same fertile qualities. Uh, next slide. And a little to the right of this niche, uh, you can kind of see the niche on the left side, but uh, up here in the center area of your screen, you're going to see a stage, a little platform. Uh, this is called a shrine to the sacred goats. Here, crowds gathered. Uh, after you had finished wor worshiping the statue, you would move over to the right, and you would come to this stage. And uh, what they did here was they would observe the sacred goats. They had goats in a pen. Uh, they would get the goats on stage, and they would have the goats mate with each other. And when that was finished, the worshipers themselves then got on the stage, and they performed obscene acts with each other, with the temple prostitutes, and in an attempt to recreate the god Pan with the goats. And so that, that was Caesarea Philippi. That's what you were dealing with when you came to this city. The city was so full of evil that rabbis called it the rock of the gods because there were you know, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands gods worshipped here. People came through Israel and they would stop here and worship gods. And the sin and the darkness that surrounded this place, you know, Jews would never come near here. They heard stories and they would stay away for fear of, you know, even coming near would just get you a little dirty and sinful. And so you get to this passage, chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. Next slide. And you get to this passage and you see this city. And the first line is, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And you kind of read that and you're like, okay, whatever. But now that you know the background of it, do you get it? Do you see what it's like here? And so you can imagine as Jesus is walking these 25 miles and the disciples are following behind him, they're asking all sorts of questions. Jesus, where are we going? Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, we're getting close to an area that my parents told me to never go towards. But Jesus doesn't answer them. Uh, rabbis never tell their disciples where they're going. You just kind of have to learn while you're walking. It's learn with your feet. You don't ever know where the destination is. You just know the journey. But Jesus is leading them here. And as Jesus brings them closer to this city, you can imagine what the disciples are thinking. You know, my, my parents told me to never go near Caesarea Philippi. Has Jesus lost his mind? All sorts of things go through the, their heads. Still, amongst the filth and the sin of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus gives his disciples a kind of final exam, one that will shape the future of every single disciple and one that should shape the mission of the church even to this day. But let's go back to the text now. Uh, you get to uh, verse 13, and it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? So they give him answers. You know, you know, some say you're John the Baptist, which is really big because 
Uh, John the Baptist was so important back in the day that he would actually, they believed that John the Baptist would be resurrected and he would walk around the earth right before the actual Messiah came. So some people considered him John the Baptist. Uh, you know, some people considered him Elijah, who the same thing kind of happened where he would come back before the actual Messiah. Some say Jeremiah, some say some of the prophets. But then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And after, you know, all those answers, Peter gets it right. And he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And now if you look at the Hebraic word order, you go back to the original, uh, the word order in Hebrew. It's actually quite interesting because here it suggests that there's an emphasis on the word living, not on Messiah, not on God, but living. And so you can possibly think, you know, Peter looking down on those unspeakable atrocities. I like to think that they're up on this hill where we took a picture from. Um, you can you can imagine him looking down on the city and maybe, you know, this horrible worship is going on while Jesus is giving this lesson. And you can imagine him thinking, you know, that's not you, Jesus. You aren't that. You are the son of the one living God. And so it's quite interesting that he he puts his emphasis on the word living. But do you know what made those 12 young men different from those pagans worshiping Pan? It, It wasn't because, you know, they were better people. They didn't have better souls. We're all sinners. But what made them different was that they had come to know Jesus as Messiah. And those people hadn't. Those people worshiping Pan, you know, they're in their pain and their suffering. They didn't know what the dozen high school age students had just learned. But people here this morning, you and me, we also know that Jesus is the son of the living God. Yet if we come here this morning and we say, look at those people down in Caesarea Philippi. And then look at us. Look how awesome it is that we know Jesus to be the Messiah and that we're with him. And then look at those people who don't know him one bit. If we say that, we've missed Jesus' whole point. The mission of the church is not to hide and to look down on those who live without Jesus and treat them as second-class citizens. The mission of the church is to see that we are the hands and feet of of God and Jesus and to eradicate this ignorance of Jesus being the Messiah. And so God calls us to fight sin all the way to the gates of Hades by building the church and his ministry on the rock. But then you might ask, you know, what is the rock? Well, this is where it gets a little controversial and this is where I thank Michael for giving me this sermon this Sunday because it gets a little tough here. In today's world, there seems to be two main definitions of what the rock is. And then there's a viewpoint that others, including myself, you know, seem to side with. Some people believe that when Jesus says, and, I, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Um, some believe that Jesus intends the rock to be Peter. Jesus is talking to Peter here and Peter's name literally translates as the rock. So it would make sense. But others see the rock as Peter's confession, his his statement that Jesus is Messiah and the son of the living God. Uh, This viewpoint sees that the confession of faith in Jesus is the foundation or rock of the church. And that's what the church is built on. But then there's a third viewpoint. This is one that I, I tend to go with. 
Um, and it's recently been rediscovered. I'm not going to say, you know, created, because I believe that this was what Jesus meant. This was his main point. The third viewpoint has been taught to many, including me, on this trip. And you can go out and look it up on followtherabbi.com if you want to. Uh, that's where I go for those kind of lessons. But to learn it, we must ask ourselves uh, just a few questions. Now, the first one, where are Jesus and his disciples in this passage? Well, they're in Caesarea Philippi. The second one, what rock are they looking at that Jesus refers to? And you can say that they're looking at the rocky area or grotto reserved for this pan worship. And then third, you know, what happens on this rocky grotto? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the wicked worship of pan happens here. So you, you ask those questions and you answer yourself and you think, where might have Jesus wanted his church to be built? And if you still aren't satisfied, listen to Jesus' next statement. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, do you remember the entrance to Hades was by way of water? I told you that in the beginning. And also, let me remind you that in the ancient world, the cave of Caesarea Philippi was referred to by the Greeks and by others as the gates of Hades. Jesus, is, he tells his disciples that the gates won't overcome his church. But what are gates? Gates are built for defensive purposes, for protection. Gates can attack. So what is Jesus doing here in this passage? He's using an offensive strategy to reach out to his lost sheep. And Jesus is calling these disciples, these teenagers, no less. They're probably high school students, uh, ranging from 15. Peter might be 19. So these, these high school students, he's calling to them, and he's telling them to storm the gates of hell. He wants them to go to the places filled with sin and evil and to create new communities of God in these dangerous lands. Now, you could get persecuted for bringing such, you know, such ideas into areas. Later on, after Jesus is uh, crucified and then he's resurrected, the disciples go out into areas like Turkey and uh, other parts of Asia Minor, and they face much worse things than what you hear about at Caesarea Philippi. Like Corneth. Corneth, for example, is, is much worse. And people get killed there all the time for their beliefs other than the pagan religions. And so Jesus calls his disciples, who are very young, to go out to these lands and to establish amazing areas where love and grace are welcome and that Jesus is Messiah. Can you believe that, being a teenager and having that kind of you know, challenge ahead of you. That, that would be tough. Now, this morning, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying AHUMC and New Heights are these horrible places where, you know, we're, we're just hiding away. They're great places. But we're not meant to come here Sunday after Sunday, to just come here and listen to a nice 20 or 25-minute sermon and then go out to eat, eat lunch and go home. That's not what God wants us to do. He wants us out there on the front lines, and he wants us carrying the cross of Jesus. He wants us out there spreading his love and his grace and his message, his radical message, no less, of peace and forgiveness towards all. He wants us out there spreading that among the areas of darkness. So you may ask, how do we go out and how do we take on all this sin, evil, and darkness? I mean, there's a lot of it, right? Right? 
we're kind of overwhelmed here. We're, we're, out, we're outnumbered, we're outgunned. But I have two examples. I have an unsuccessful one. I'll start with the bad news because we like that. And then I'll start with a story of success, the good news. Uh, please, next slide. The Middle East, you know, they've had a bitter taste of Christianity and Jesus over the years. Uh, that place is, is an area of chaos, especially today. But towards Christians particularly, they're, they're not very friendly. They were to me when I was there. But, you know, the religion itself is not very welcome. About a thousand years ago, a massive army swept over the, that land into Israel And supposedly they were bearing the message of Jesus and doing the work of God. But sadly, much more harm was done than good. Many people were slaughtered by these crusaders. And among those killed, not only Muslims, but Jews and Christians. People who didn't look like the Western Europe's version of Jesus. And after they successfully killed and terrified these residents... The crusaders built giant fortresses uh, high up on hills, uh, like this one you see in the picture. This one's called Nimrod. You might have heard of it. It actually overlooks the ruins of Caesarea Philippi. The crusaders remained in these forts, and they were afraid to face their subjects because they had caused so much pain and suffering among these people that if they go down there, some harm might arise. Now, maybe the reason why people in the modern world today refuse to associate with Jesus, the Messiah, is because they look at his disciples, you and me. They look at us today, and they see a group of people who cause pain and then retreat to the safety of their churches. We say, if they don't want to come to us at our church, forget about them. But does that sound like Jesus' message of love, care, and humility? When we think these thoughts, we must remember what Jesus said. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So if we want to continue to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth and to build a community of love, we must remember Jesus, not ourselves. We must remember Jesus and his radical message. Next slide. And we're back to Caesarea Philippi. But here's the good news after the bad. There are still places like this all over the world. And we still have a chance to follow the message of Jesus and establish his light in those places of darkness and sin. We have the benefit of learning from our ancestors a thousand years ago. What what have we learned? We must not bring violence and pain and force to those places of darkness. Rather... We have to offer our love and our service and our care to those who don't know Jesus. Now, there are Christians everywhere who understand Jesus' message, and they work constantly toward his goal. Even in our church, we see God's love and community at work. Uh, A few examples. You know, today, Michael Crocker and 18 others are in Costa Rica, and they're spreading the ancient message of love and grace And they're acting as hands and feet of Jesus, even faraway countries. Not not that far away, but still. Others go on mission trips to Africa and South America. You know, people go downtown and they help out at the Hope Center. 
It's everywhere. There are people in this church who get it. And there are people all over, all over the world who get it. Don't get me wrong, you know, not all Christians are bad and not all hide in their churches. Slowly but surely, we are starting to realize Jesus' message. And there, are, there is hope all over the world because some Christians understand Jesus. And now my prayer is that eventually all Christians will completely understand the Messiah and will effectively be his disciples to create one community, and that community is the kingdom of heaven on earth. But you may be asking yourself, where are the gates of Hades in, the, in my world today? You know, I can't tell you that. But I know God will definitely answer your question. Now, you may not be overjoyed with the places he sends you. It may even be like Caesarea Philippi, or it might just be right down the road. But as long as you go as a community and not by yourself, intending to build the church through God's love and Jesus' message, we will not be overcome. Uh, will the worship team please come back out on stage? Uh, please bow your heads and pray with me. Gracious and loving God, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to know your Messiah and to know that you love us no matter what. Now please, this is what we pray. Let us go out from this church and let us go be your hands and your feet and let us effectively do your work as you intended to love and care for others and to, to continue to build your kingdom. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.